Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 655 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 13th of November 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Rachel McLean about her book, Five Steps to Author Success, and how she went from not selling very well on her first few books to making a very good living and winning an award once she figured out how to write at the intersection of what sells and what she enjoyed writing. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news and information, there was a great article on the Alliance of Independent Authors blog this week about how to predict and profit from publishing trends. And I'm in it as well as Orna Ross and Jane Friedman and Becca Syme. And uh, the, the article says, obviously, we can't predict the future with any level of guarantee, but we can make educated guesses. And we are in the midst of exciting technological and social developments that are highly favourable to entrepreneurial authors. If we can be ahead of the curve or at least catch it as the change begins, we're more likely to succeed. So Orna explains her process as getting a twinge of excitement and following that curiosity, which is basically what I do as well. And uh, Orna definitely caught the whole blockchain thing before I did. Uh, She spotted that coming. Uh, She says you don't have to change your lens on writing or life, but you have to be able to see beyond them if you want to spot trends. She says the main trend to pay attention right now, uh, besides working out which of the new AI powered tools is of most use to you, is the shift in the economy from what people call B2B, business to business, for publishing, that's publishers to bookstores, and switching to B2C, so business to consumer. So for us, it's publishers to consumers and authors to readers. So that's the direct sales model. Uh, Orna says, if you don't yet have a transactional author website uh, or equivalent, it's time to get one and start shifting at least some of your marketing in that direction. I mean, obviously, I've been selling direct since 2008. So uh, I've I've always had that part of it. But this year, I did shift to the Shopify store. <laughs> you know, I have to mention it every show, creativepenbooks.com. And I did an episode on my minimum viable store back in August 2022, episode 640. And thanks to everyone who buys direct from me. And a couple of the main reasons are you get the money immediately or within like 24 hours and you get higher royalty rates. So it, it definitely takes a mindset shift because, of course, none of those sales hit any kind of algorithms, any kind of bestseller lists. But you get the money, you get the customer data, you get the relationship and you get, yeah, higher royalty. So it's easier to make a living. <laughs> well, I say easier, uh, 
nothing's easy in this business. There are easier ways to make a living, that's for sure. But um, yeah, so that's Orna's prediction is it's it's a real shift. And it's funny because I often feel like, well, surely we're all doing that already. But then I realise that most people are not doing that, including most publishers. I guess this is what's kind of crazy to me is there's so many independent publishers who could be running a transactional store and taking more of a cut instead of sending all the traffic to um, a store that's going to take a lot more of a percentage. So, yeah, I think this will be a trend for independent publishers as and maybe the big publishers as well as authors. Jane Friedman talks about her process. And of course, um, she has the hot sheet, which is fantastic about getting news in publishing. She talks about subscribing to hundreds of newsletters and media sources to get out of the writing and publishing bubble and seeing the bigger picture. She also says, I read thought leaders and authors I don't agree with, because if you want to see what's coming down the road, you have to be able to set aside your own biases, biases, (laughs) and anticipate you have blind spots. And definitely, I mean, we all need that and I I have them too absolutely or you have to and you have to sort of hedge against other things working out so yeah interesting times Becca has a really interesting thing where she talks about her angle of trying to make the industry more sane because I'm also a writer I have to live and work inside whatever we create she says anxiety makes us act crazy and uncertainty increases anxiety. And that's why there's a lot of anxiety around in general at the moment. You know, we all thought the pandemic was the bottom. But of course, <laughs> now we've got recessions, we've got war here in Europe. It's uh, things, things are difficult, um, difficult times. Now, Becca coaches hundreds of hours per month. So he gets a good overview of what's happening. And she says, my prediction at the moment is sustainability and she doesn't mean sort of the green angle, she means personally, we have to think about building sustainable businesses. Now the gold rush is over, and the established industry is emerging with more stable rules and basically no blue water, authors need to build businesses and processes that can be sustained as is, or we need to find support to replicate the process. It's no longer rush to publish as all markets are flooded. But the good news is there are still plenty of readers and indies have full access. There are no barriers to long-term businesses other than sustainability. But she says, things that expend too much of our personal time or our finances will be unsustainable. Building infrastructure around books that don't sell is unsustainable. I know that sounds harsh, but it's a basic principle of business that growth has to be sustainable or it will kill a business. And I love Becca is very wise. She's been on this show. She has um, her quick cast, which is fantastic. Brilliant books. I love her books. Um, and so she she's given some good hard truths at the moment. And this article contains a few more. She says, don't build infrastructure around books that don't sell. Don't translate books that don't sell. Don't put books that don't sell into audio. Don't endlessly advertise books that have proven they won't sell. Don't do every new thing trying to make books sell that the market has for the time being rejected. You have a better chance of helping books sell in the long run if you write more entry points and keep focusing on writing books. Create a lean business until you see demand increase. Make the best product you can and don't assume that books not selling says 
something about you or your talent. So much of selling is about timing. Focus on writing and reserve all the things for when you know the product will deliver. So some great tips there. I think this is so important. I have made mistakes. For example, don't translate books that don't sell. I got into translation way too early in like 2014. And that was, uh, it was a mistake. I mean, I experiment, often experiment early. (laughs) And yeah, I was about three years too early on that. And it really didn't go well. And of course, since then, I've come back into some translation. But again, I've only done it for my nonfiction because my fiction just wasn't selling enough um, to justify it because it's expensive. So I think these are some really good points. It's the hard truth here. Don't endlessly advertise books that have proven they won't sell. And that we'll go into this in the interview as well. I think we all have to consider spending money on things right now, given the financial situation and what is worth spending money on and what is not. So uh, I will question though, Becca, on one side, I will say that. Um, She says, focusing on writing and the marketing, focus on the marketing when you know the product will deliver. But of course, how do you know when the product will deliver? Because it's not just about writing more books. Uh, Sometimes we have to shift what we write in order to appeal to more readers and find that intersection of what we enjoy and what sells. And I appreciate Rachel's honesty in her book and the interview coming up. Uh, After 17 novels, it's something I'm thinking about. And I've got another interview coming up with Dan Padavona about this in a couple of weeks time, where basically, he switched from horror to serial killer thrillers because just writing more horror books did not work. Um, But once he switched genres like Rachel, he was able to make a full-time living with his fiction. But it is all about our definition of success. Not everyone is writing for the money. Are you writing the books of your heart? Are you writing for critical acclaim? Or are you writing for money? Now, maybe most people are like, well, I want all of that. Well, I think we can aim for all of that, but probably not with the same book. (laughs) So sometimes we just want that one book to do all of those things and it's just not going to. So yeah, it's all about your definition of success. That's what it comes down to. So are you happy with where you are with your books? And of course, you can do different things with different genres, with different series. So for me, my nonfiction, I do write it because I love writing nonfiction. I do feel like it's a happy place for me. But equally, those books do sell. This is this business, my nonfiction business is my main business. My fiction is mainly for the love of it. And if I wanted to make a living with my fiction, I would have to do things quite differently. And Rachel, um, Rachel McLean, Dan Padavona, um, talking about uh, other other people who make a full-time living with their fiction, that's what they do. They don't have other businesses. So yeah, all good questions to think about as we head toward the end of the year. Can you believe it? We're all sort of thinking about these things. So in my personal update, I am still writing my pilgrimage book, but I absolutely have to finish the draft this week so that I can do my self-editing and get it to my editor by the end of the month. So that is my big focus. I just have to, I think I probably just have to leave aside a lot of the stuff that I'm still thinking about uh, because I, I want to... Well, I want to get it to my editor because she will give me really good feedback um, as to how much more I need to put in. I, I feel like I I want this book to be, it's a book of my heart for sure. It is not a, nobody writes a pilgrimage book to market. <laughs> 
but it's a personal it's a very personal book it's got a lot of memoir in so yeah I, it's an interesting process to write it but I'm definitely going to be ready to get back to writing something I know after this uh, but yes the big news in our house is we now have our two adopted cats Cashew and Noisette in our uh, here they are a, a little bit bonkers obviously but they're they're fitting in well they are British short hair cats and you can see their pictures on my Instagram or Facebook at JF Pen author and we love having them it's lovely to those of you who are cat people you understand and dog people too I mean dogs are different but um, yeah it's nice having them around and getting them has actually been part of my post pilgrimage shift they will probably make it into the book actually because we haven't had a cat since we left Australia in 2011 2011 yes gosh so long ago and we had a cat Shmi and we had to rehome Shmi because he he was he had a he was like a little feral Australian cat really he was very he loved being outside and he hated being in a cage and we just couldn't ship him to the UK because the thought of putting him in a cage for the long journey was too much he just would have gone nuts so we found him a home and a lovely home and he lived he only died last year actually I've been watching him on Instagram for a decade Um, so he lived a good life in his adopted home and so we feel like adopting cats is almost like cat karma (laughs) Uh, because their previous mummy, she her life changed and nobody wants to get rid of a pet or move a pet on and we want the best for our pets and so we're really happy to have adopted the cats and yeah, have a look at my pictures if you like cats and thanks to everyone who sent me pictures of their cats <laughs> after I sent that out in my newsletter this week. Uh, I also spoke at NFT London last week and I've got an interview with Jay Thorne coming up so uh, or it's a more of a discussion with Jay Thorne that's coming up in in between so this week so I'll talk about that then. I also did my first two live on Zoom workshops on your author business plan which went really well got some good feedback um, and it was so nice to see everyone's faces so just lovely to interact personally and talk with some people and yeah uh, in terms of sort of practical business tips I used Eventbrite online events which was excellent with integrated with Zoom. What I hate on some of these things I go go to is where people have to let people in manually and they're like, oh, I just have to stop a minute to let someone else into the Zoom room or whatever. But doing it through Eventbrite meant that anyone with a ticket then logged in through their ticket and essentially I didn't have to let anyone in manually and there were no technical issues, which I thought was brilliant. So yeah, if you're doing online events, I mean, obviously Eventbrite take a fee, but uh, I just found that really good. Um, I've got one more on the 27th of November. There's about three places left uh, if you you, uh, want to come the creativepen.com forward slash live l-i-v-e and that's where i'm going to keep all my things um, i might do some more live things um as workshops still thinking about that i've, I've really enjoyed it but equally it, it takes time and, and energy also, I am doing a webinar with Alex Newton from Kalytics and we're doing trends for 2023. And we haven't done a live webinar for a few years now since pre-pandemic and his research into categories, keywords and genres really fits with what Rachel McLean will be talking about in the interview section today in terms of researching the section, the intersection between what sells and what you love. Now, you know, I'm not a very data person, but Alex is. He is super data guy. um, And he is going to uh, do this webinar. Uh, It is on 
genre trends and how to spot them, the impact of Amazon's recent category display changes, fundamentals and pitfalls of sales rank, categories and writing to market, how the right data can help you save time, money and energy and sell more books in 2023. And he will be going into various genre trends. It is on Thursday, the 1st of December. 8pm UK time, 3pm US Eastern and whatever your time zone is on, you can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash trends 23. So trends, T-R-E-N-D-S 2-3 to sign up for that. Links in the show notes. Oh, I should say it's a free webinar. And of course, Alex does have reports and things you can buy as part of that. And I am an affiliate for his uh, wonderful Kalytics programs. But um, that webinar is free. So you can join us Thursday, 1st of December, thecreativepen.com forward slash trends 23. Right. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. Lola said about Ada Ari's interview on writing diverse books. She said, this has really inspired me afresh. I'm a Nigerian in the diaspora, UK in my case. I've been thinking about how to get my heritage across to my eventual children and my nieces and nephews. Language has been so deeply in my heart. Uh, from Yoruba as a child to French, German and bits of Spanish and Japanese as an adult. So I think that's it's just fantastic to hear about these things. And Dawn Rose said, oh my goodness, this was amazing. I've been trying to do a parallel thing, working with interpretation partners in bilingual children's picture books for over a decade. So inspired by Ada's energy and inventiveness. Brilliant. And thanks to Joe Salem, who said, I'm still working my way through your backlist. <laughs> I, I, I'm at the point now where I can't believe people go and listen to the backlist. Uh, the podcast has been going for a very long time. And remember, things change. And if you're listening backwards, <laughs> you're, I mean, things have moved on. So if you, I mean, a lot of the mindset tips, I guess, a lot of, a lot of the practical tips will still work. But uh, yeah, be aware of the time if you're listening to the backlist. Um, Joe sent a lovely picture of a beautiful sunrise over the lake, said, I listened to this this morning while walking in the last warm sunrise here in Houston. So you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. Yes, I'm still on Twitter. I'm planning to stay even if the ship goes down. (laughs) Well, if the ship goes down, I'll go down with it, I guess, at this point. But I've been on Twitter since 2009. So I'm kind of all in there. Send me pictures of where you're listening. You can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. You can leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's episode is sponsored by Ingram Spark, which I use to print and distribute my self-published print books wide. Because with Ingram Spark, it's my content, but they help me do more with it. If you publish through Ingram Spark, you will have access to over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores and more across a global network of distributors, including bookstores like Foils, Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, Bookshop.org, which has become popular in the pandemic, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target and loads of independent stores in the USA. And uh, actually, just as a side note, this week I got an email from a university. Uh, They want to use successful self-publishing as part of their curriculum. This is like the fifth time I've had successful self-publishing being used in university courses, which warms my heart for many reasons. I mean, the, the income might be not that 
massive from a class of students buying the book. But hopefully the mindset shift is is what's important. But those that university found the books through and ordered them through the catalogue through Ingram Spark, basically. So, of course, it does mean your book will be available to order, but you still have to drive demand. But since having my books on IngramSpark, I have had pictures from you guys of my print books in libraries. I've sold them at book fairs, conventions and in physical stores and, of course, the universities. You can choose to use returns, um, but it's not necessary. And you can choose your discount percentage. And that discount percentage is what makes it possible for bookstores and all of the above to make money. That's how they make money. And that's That's why they will not order your book from Amazon, as well as other reasons. (laughs) You can also bulk order. For example, if you want back of the room copies for live events or if you work direct with schools or bookstores, um, you can ship whole boxes of books to the location. Uh, So if you want your books available for all of those things, go wide with your print books. It's your content. Do more with it. Head over to ingramspark.com. And just uh, to add to that again, I use both, well, I use three print um, services now. So I use KDP Print for Amazon. I use IngramSpark for the wide distribution. And I also use BookVault to print from my Shopify store. So essentially, uh, and that's on my minimum viable store thing. So it's like there are multiple um, ebook distributors, multiple print distributors and multiple audio distributors. We have all of these options now to reach the widest audience possible. Also, I have a special code you can use. If you go to ingramspark.com, you can use promo code PEN, P-E-N-N, at checkout for one free book upload, print, ebook or both if uploaded at the same time until the end of December 2022. So that's promo code PEN, P-E-N-N, at checkout. So, oh, it has to be all caps, pen in caps. Okay, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time, as ever, is sponsored by my wonderful patrons and especially the extra shows that I do, the futurist shows, my patrons support those. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Vonnie Kennedy, The Witcherly Book Company, Cynthia, Stephen Schwambach, uh, Eleanor Mastrovich, Faye Louise, Karen Izzo and Eric Hans Holverder. So I'll be recording my Q&A for patrons this week and that is an extra 40 to sort of 45 minutes of audio where I answer your questions about writing craft, publishing, book marketing, making a living with your writing, AI, all the rest. Uh, so if you are a patron, remember you can ask those questions and yeah, you can support the show if you want to for a few dollars. You also get um, percentage off my ebooks, audiobooks, courses, all of that. You can support the show with just a few dollars or euros or whatever your currency is. They have most currencies now. Um, yeah, less than a coffee a month and you'll get that extra monthly Q&A audio and the discounts. Support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Rachel McLean is the award-winning and best-selling author of the Dorset Crime Novels and the Zoe Finch Detective series, and she writes non-fiction for writers under Rachel McCollin. Today, we're talking about five steps to author success. Write books readers love and become a full-time writer. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to be here. 
Oh, yeah, this is going to be so fascinating. But first up, just tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Well, I mean, like many writers, I've been writing since I was in primary school. I think I wrote my first serialised story when I was about nine. And I loved to write stories when I was a child and then went to secondary school and had it drummed out of me and had to write essays, went to university, much the same process. And then quite a few years later, I was working at the Environment Agency and I was responsible for communication skills training. And I had to test out a business writing course. It was all about plain English and also about writing for an audience and understanding the needs of the reader. And on this course, we had to mind map a piece of writing that we were planning. I wasn't actually planning a piece of writing because I was there to trial the course as against because I was doing the kind of writing where I needed it. So I thought, I know, I'll mind map a novel. And so I did. And that eventually became A House Divided, which is one of my political thriller trilogies. I started writing that when I was pregnant with my oldest son, who's about to turn 18. And it took 15 years to get from that point to publication. I write a lot faster now, though. (laughs) That's brilliant. And then, well, okay, so just bring us up to date then, because he's 18 now. And so you said 15 years. So what, three years ago, you really started getting into publishing? And And why didn't you go the traditional route as well? So yeah, three or or four years ago, I was a member of a writer's group, Birmingham Writer's Group, which I joined to to get some motivation to write. And I had a couple of friends through that group, Heidi Goodie and Grant, and they'd been publishing independently. They'd been self-publishing for a few years. And I'd seen that they were doing well. They were making money, building up a readership, getting quite a loyal following. And at the same time, I was querying agents And not getting anywhere. And then I went to a festival of writing in York, which is run by Jericho Writers. And there were people there from the indie world and the trad world talking about the differences between the two. And I thought, actually, I think this could be for me because I've always run my own business. I've got a head for marketing and accounting and all that kind of thing that you need to do to run your own publishing business. And I... I like to have autonomy over what I do. So I started publishing in 2017, December of 2017. It was slow at first, but I stuck with it, did a lot of learning around the marketing and the publishing and also improving my craft. And then eventually it was July of 2020 that I released the book that took off and made my career, which was the first Zoe Finch book. Yeah. And what I love about your book, this five steps to author success, you do break all this down. And it's very evident that you do have this head for business, because I love that you, you studied this. I mean, it annoys me how people think, oh, I'm just not a good writer. Therefore, I'm not selling or I'm not good. I don't have talent or whatever. So you've done so many things to study about this. But I want to first ask you about mindset so those first books weren't so successful so how did you change your mindset to make the shift to where you are now as an award-winning best-selling author yeah I think the simple thing is I stopped writing books that were just for me and started writing books that I enjoyed writing but also that readers would enjoy reading and I got a much better grasp of what the market wanted But also there's a human side to that. It's about understanding what readers respond to and what they enjoy. And I know people can sometimes be a bit sniffy about the idea of of understanding the market and researching the market that it seems quite calculating. But actually, it's about writing things that other people want to read, which to me is what writing is for. 
Yeah, although it's interesting. I've been thinking about this uh, because you actually say this in the book as well, that we are not normal. Like writers <laughs> are not readers. So we are readers, but we're not normal readers. I mean, no. I, I've got here on the desk a book on the Arctic stuff, a book on robots and AI, and I'm reading the Richard Osmond cozy mystery mm. series. I mean, you know, I, and I read all over the shop. And so how do we go from being eclectic readers and people interested in all these things to going down to that human side and identifying what particular niche uh, genre authors really like to read without taking it too weird, which I I know I do with my books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think what I did was I see it, and this is in my book, as a kind of Venn diagram where you've got what you like to read, what readers, other readers like to read, and what you're good at writing. And I looked at that and I like you, I like reading all sorts of things, but I like reading crime and I like reading thrillers. Um, In terms of what I'm good at writing, I know that I'm good at writing suspense and mystery. And I, I tend to write the darker side of things better than lighter, more humorous books. And then there's finding what the market wants. And for that, the, the sweet spot there was crime, particularly with a British market, because I'd already tried writing books aimed at the US market and not done very well. And I know a lot of indies find that you need to hit the US market to achieve success, because obviously it's so much bigger than the British market. But the British market for crime is massive. And you just mentioned Richard Osman. If I, you look at his reviews on Amazon, and those are going to reflect sales levels, it shows that there is room. He's sold 10 times what I have, and I've sold a million books in the last two years. And it shows that there is room for many more sales of books in those genres. Congratulations, by the way. That's a hell of a lot of sales. So that's fantastic. <laughs> and again, I love in the book, you're super honest and you're like, my early books didn't do that. And then I did this process and then I started selling a lot. So tell us about your research process to figure out how to write to this market. Yeah, well, I read Chris Fox's books. I found his book really useful because they're short and pithy and they get straight to the point and they give you some very practical tips. And one that I picked up from him was looking at your comps and reading the reviews of of your comps rather than your own reviews. So while I look at some of my own reviews, I don't go into the rabbit hole of reading all my own reviews because that way madness lies. But I looked at what people were saying about books by people like LJ Ross and JD Kirk and other successful indies in the crime genre. And also the people who are published by the digital first publishers like Bookature and Joffe to find out what it was that readers were responding to, what it was they liked, what it was they weren't so keen on. And then looked at how I could, without copying what other people had done, but how I could bring those aspects of what readers liked into my own writing. And then what did you do? Because, <laughs> I mean, well, it, it, did you turn that into like a, a blueprint almost that you followed? The first book, Deadly Wishes, which was the first Zoe Finch book, I wrote that in the first lockdown, sitting in the camper van on my front drive. And For that one, I actually produced a spreadsheet to plot the book. I don't plot in such detail now. Um, I like a good spreadsheet. I'm a bit of a geek like you. (laughs) And I had a spreadsheet that went through, had all the chapters. And then in each chapter, it detailed what was happening in terms of advancing the plot, developing the characters, 
um, bringing readers into the location, because that's something that really came out in my research, is that readers love a strong sense of location in crime books, whether there was any action and also what the clues and red herrings were. So I plotted that out on this huge spreadsheet that I printed out and put on the back of my door of my living room at home. I couldn't fit it in the camper van. And I used that. I worked through that to write the book. And it gave me a very detailed blueprint for how to do that. And I I sort of slowly over the next few books reduced the amount of detail I was doing in terms of the planning as I got more familiar and more comfortable with it. Mm. And I mean, I've read some of I've read some of your books and I've also read quite a lot of crime books over time. And I've written some myself, but I did kind of get bored because they do have a a, a formula, really. They do have a formula. So how do you stop yourself from getting bored or burning out in such a voracious genre? Because crime in the UK is a bit like romance, I guess. It's super, super fast moving. It is. I get readers emailing me the day after a book comes out saying, when's the next one out? Yeah. And I, I say to them, not for a few months, but read one of L.J. Ross's books in the meantime. And we all recommend each other. The crime genre has got a big community of authors in the UK and we all sort of help each other out and recommend each other's books. But in terms of not getting bored, for me, it's all about the characters. So I have underlying story arcs within each series. So there's a plot, there's an arc in each book, which is the crime and the solution of the crime. But then under that, there is an arc which in the Zoe Finch series is all about police corruption and in the Dorset crime series is about organised crime and the fact that the main detective is in a relationship with a lawyer who's tied up with organised crime. And I find developing that storyline is what keeps me motivated as I work through the series because actually that's that's a sort of a slightly trickier and more fun storyline to develop because it's not formulaic. It's not something that all crime authors do. It's something that I can be more creative with because it's something that I've come up with. And readers love it. That's what keeps readers going from one book to the next. And also the characters. So I feel that yeah, the character in lockdown, the characters in the Zoe Finch series were my mates. They kept me company in lockdown. And I really enjoy going back to writing characters. So, for example, I've been writing the Dorset Crime series for quite a while now, but I'm currently writing a Christmas Zoe Finch book, which I'm almost finished. And it's really nice to go back to writing people who I haven't written for about 18 months and just yeah, spending some time with those characters again. So I think that's what keeps me going. Mm, and uh, Angela Marzen said that, of course, she's a very successful yeah. crime writer as well. She said that uh, people feel that about the characters. And it's so interesting. I resisted reading the Richard Osmonds because I was like, oh, it's because he's famous on TV that mm. he's so successful. And then I started. Have you read his books? I have. And they are really good. It's, they are. They are. It's but the tone I love, the way they're written. Yeah. And um, also the characters, yeah. uh, if people listening, especially if you're not in the UK, you might not know, but they're cozy mystery, but they're set in like a retirement home and the characters are all in their seventies really. And I've just whizzed through the four books or whatever it is, three books wait and pre-ordered the fourth because I love the characters. And this is, I think, it, I mean, it can be difficult with the crime genre, which is why it's interesting. His detectives are not the primary characters, actually they're side characters, but with detectives, books how can we write original characters and plots without kind of using the tired cliches or do we need to use the tired cliches because that's what crime readers you know want 
There are some tired cliches that crime readers expect, and there are tropes. But then I think it's just about putting your own twist on it. I I deliberately don't read huge amounts of crime because I don't want to end up aping all of the other books that I read. I read enough that it just keeps me on top of what's happening in the genre and how other people are writing. But that's by no means what I'm reading all the time. So I think, I mean, it's also about having characters who feel real. So I sat in an author event in Swanage Library, which is one of the locations in my Dorset books, and witnessed an argument between two readers about whether or not they liked the main detective. And I just sat back and thought, my job here is done. Because if these people think this woman is so real that they're prepared to have an argument over whether they like her or not, I've clearly mm-hmm. written her well. And I actually, she, it's a spin-off series. She was the boss of Zoe Finch in the first crime series I wrote. And I really enjoyed writing her. So I thought, oh, I'll move her down to Dorset because I love Dorset. And I had all my childhood holidays there and show her trying to fit in in a rural community and struggling with it at first but eventually developing relationships with the other detectives down there and the process of that and the humor in that readers have really responded to and they really enjoy Mm. well you do say in the book if you want to write a book that sells in the tens of thousands or even the millions then find ways to tweak your readers heartstrings Mm. so obviously you've talked about real characters but how do we tweak those heartstrings how do we write more emotionally Yeah, I think it's about having characters that readers feel that they know and that they can relate to. They don't always love them, but they respond to them in some way or another. Um, Taking time to develop those characters. I actually think the development of the characters is more important in a long-running crime series than attention to detail on the actual crimes. Although I am quite fastidious with my procedural aspects. I have all the textbooks and I have a retired detective who checks them for me. But I think it's building up those characters to a point where readers care about them and then having things happen to them. You know, it's the old thing about you create a character and then make horrible things happen to them and see if they can get out of it. And I also think twisting the relationships between the characters and making things happen there and people discovering things about people that they've got either professional or personal relationships with that throws that relationship on its head and that is often linked to the crime but pulls together the personal and the professional for those characters. I'm a member of a a Facebook group called UK Crime Book Club. And when I started writing crime, I asked a question, do people like to read crime books where there's quite a lot about the main detective's personal life? And the overwhelming response was yes, Mm. uh, people do like that. So I I made sure I included things about Zoe's son and her partner who she got together with over the course of the books and that kind of thing, because readers really like to feel that those characters have have got some depth and they're not just turning up to work and solving crimes. Mm, No, absolutely. Although, again, I mean, you mentioned being fastidious. I feel like there's almost a bar that you have to reach, which is a certain amount of reality, and then the characters. Otherwise, people pick apart the procedural aspect and forget the characters whereas if you can get the plot and the procedural stuff right then then it's almost like they can focus on the stuff they really really love yeah and I think it needs to be credible enough that it doesn't draw attention to itself Mm. so research into police procedure is is much like research into a location or world building in that it's a bit like an iceberg where only a tenth of what you've researched actually shows up in the book 
but it's about having that confidence in what you're writing about that you know that what what does show up in the book is correct yeah so on location then because and this is another kind of thing with UK crime writers Mm. is specific areas in the UK specific counties and I don't know if LJ Ross was the person who made this more obvious but it really does seem like everyone's picking out a part of the country (laughs) to focus on but you've had the holidays and things in Dorset but you don't live there anymore you do research trips or is it all online I do I go regularly when I was writing the first six books, I was probably going to Dorset more than once a month. And when I started writing the series, I spent a week in Dorset and I planned out where all my crime scenes were going to be. And I walked to them all and I made them all in places that were fairly inaccessible. So it meant I got to have a really nice walk. But it also meant that I could imagine you've got this beauty spot with an amazing view and we're going to spoil it by dumping a body in it and then putting forensic tents up and all the rest of it. And as well, have a bit of an opportunity for some conflict and some humour around how the detectives and the forensics people are going to get there and the logistics of working in that sort of environment. So the location is really important. Fortunately, I went, my parents had a caravan in Wareham on the Isle of Purbeck when I was um, a child, probably for about five or six years. And then they had another one when I was in my 20s. So I didn't go to it so often, but I still went down. So I know the area very, very well. A lot of my formative memories are down there, learning to ride a bike, learning to swim on the beach, that kind of thing. And the beauty of it is the area hasn't changed that much. So I went back to Wareham, bought chips from the same fish and chip shop that I'd been going to when I was eight years old. (laughs) I went to the same cake shop, same pub, all the rest of it. So the beauty is it's not as if I've had to suddenly change all those memories and catch up. And there are some things that change. And that's that's why I go down. I've had occasions when at short notice, I've decided just to go down for two days or even a day, because I can just about get down and back in a day from Birmingham, um, because I needed to walk a specific location. So I had a climax scene in, I think, the fourth book in that series that was set on Peveril Point in Swanage. And I thought, Peveril Point I know has changed because there's been quite a lot of development work there, a lot of holiday homes being built. I thought, I've got to go down there. I've got to walk this cliff where this big scene is taking place. Because if I get this wrong, my readers will know because a lot of my readers are local to Dorset. Mm-hmm. And so I went down for a, a couple of days, managed to get some other research done as well. And something else I do, which I did then, is I, I also do a video, face to camera video at all my crime scenes. And then on publication day, I released that on social media to celebrate the fact that it's been published and generate interest in the book. And readers really enjoy that as well. Mm. Well, that's great, because I did want to ask you about book marketing. So you talk in the book about strategically seeding book sales. So Mm. how did you do that? And what is working for you in terms of marketing? Yeah, well, again, I mean, this is something I was very much inspired to do by Chris Fox and his books. And what I wanted to get to was a point where Amazon was doing most of my marketing for me because I'm exclusive. I'm in KU. So that was where my focus was. And so that was all about getting the algorithm to really understand who my readers were and who it should be targeting when it's recommending my books to people so that the chances of people buying the book is obviously maximized. So that started with seeding sales of crime readers to start with using Facebook, because one of the things I discovered trying to use Amazon ads for previous books was as 
people often say it's very, very difficult to get your Amazon ads to serve. And I read Amazon Ads Unleashed by Robert J. Ryan, and he explained that Amazon ads, because Amazon have data not only on what you're bidding and what keywords you're using or whatever, they also have data on how well your book is selling and how well your book page is converting, unlike any other advertising platforms. And Amazon uses that when deciding whether to serve your ad. So I thought, right, I need Amazon to know that people who land on my book page are going to buy the book. So I started by running Facebook ads at a low budget, just about £3 a day, I think, something like that, and testing copy, testing creative, testing audiences, and getting to a point where I was getting a really good conversion rate from those ads. And this was when the first book was on pre-order. And so at that point, once I got to a point where I had a certain level of sales, and I think by then I had two books out and the third book on pre-order, so I wanted to have enough read through that it would make it possible for me to spend more on an ad and on a sale of book one. Um, I started running Amazon ads and I did that very, very strategically aimed at specific authors and specific books. So instead of using keyword targeting, I use product targeting and I still do. I target products and categories. And I started out by trawling Amazon using a scraper called Data Miner and getting all the ASINs of my comps and then targeting all of those with my ads. So I had within each ad, I had an ad set for each author that had all those ASINs that it was targeting. After a while, that didn't have enough targets to to show up the ads on because you've only got a certain number of books. So I switched to using category targets instead. And I still do that instead of using keywords. And it's working very well for me. I'm finding that on a sale of book one, I'm doubling my money with read through on all the ads that I run across Facebook and Amazon. And obviously it's seeding a lot of organic sales because that only accounts for about 10% of my sales overall. Mm. So there's a lot of sales that, and I get emails from readers saying, oh, Amazon recommended your book to me and I really enjoyed it. And I think, yep, good on Amazon doing your job. <laughs> and I get emails every day with by Amazon telling me to buy my own books. It, Amazon probably thinks, why is this woman constantly looking at, her, at Rachel McClellan? Her own books. <laughs> <not> buying them. <laughs> um, but it's worked really, really well for me. And it was, it was a process that took a while. I did use BookBub ads when I was first doing it. I wouldn't actually recommend doing that now because it's so hard to get them, not so much to run profit profitably because I wasn't expecting to make a profit but actually to run at the sort of levels you need for it to provide Amazon with data that will help your also boards. So it's better, I would say, to use product targeting to populate the also boards by making sure that people who are reading the authors that you want in your also boards are getting your ads. Mm. Yeah, you've clearly got a super analytical brain, which I think is, yeah, yeah, which is great. But it's interesting. So we're recording this in October 2022. And a lot of people are saying Amazon ads are too expensive. Facebook ads don't work anymore since the privacy stuff. Like you just said, BookBub BookBub might not have the volume, especially in the UK, like you're doing the UK specifically. So what are your thoughts on things don't work anymore? I think it's... I'm not denying it. It probably is a bit harder now than it was a couple of years ago, particularly with Facebook having less targeting options. So I was targeting specific authors and you can't really do that now. So I target 
crime readers. Uh, I target the entire genre. And I have got the benefit that Facebook has got two years and thousands and thousands of ads served in data to understand better who to serve my ads to. But I've also got the disadvantage that my ads have been served to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And obviously, the longer that goes on, the less conversion you're going to get from those ads because people get fatigued from seeing them. But I've got ads that are still making a profit. I've got one for the Zoe Finch series that I started running in June 2021. And I ran it because it it's it was a quote from a review that said, if you like Line of Duty, you'll love this. And when it, it was when Line of Duty series six was running. So I thought I've got to take advantage of this. So I started running that ad. It did fantastically while Line of Duty was running and continued making a profit. And it's still, what, almost 18 months on, it's still making money for me, that ad. So you can run long running ads as long as you keep an eye on them and tweak the budget because the budget does have to come down over time because your clicks get more expensive. But it it is possible to do it. I think it takes a lot of work in terms of understanding what your targets are and who your readers are so that your your advertising is working in conjunction with the algorithm recommending to people and that's what's helped me build a career and it's interesting because part of what you're talking about there is people some people listening are excited by what you said and other people are going I do not want to do that that is too much work and you said something to me before we started recording which was you had looked at my website and found which elements would work for me and this this seems to be the most important thing right because I'm not like you and I don't do spreadsheets and I'm kind of a different kind of geek but I don't like running ads myself I just just don't enjoy it basically and there are people listening who will feel like that too so how can people work out what elements are going to work for them do they just have to give it a go I think there's an element of giving it a go and there's also an element of just understanding what your own preferences are so for example with tiktok that's the hot thing at the moment in book marketing that everybody's talking about and i dabbled in it for about a week and got bored but i think i knew already that it wouldn't be for me because i couldn't bear to watch tiktok yeah me too (laughs) just oh it just does my head in me now (laughs) and i mean i don't know whether that just shows i'm old but (laughs) it's it i put it on my phone and but I talked to my son about it, who's 14, and he's exactly the same. He says, oh, no, it's full of rubbish. I said, don't you even watch cat videos on it? He said, no, I watch those on YouTube. (laughs) And he will watch hours and hours of cat videos on YouTube. So I think that stuff on TikTok isn't long enough for him. Mm, That's interesting. And, And again, it's the same with our readers, right? As us as writers and also our readers, we don't have to be on TikTok to sell books. I mean, you're doing it one way. People do it different ways and we just have to figure it out. But I did want to ask you, like you mentioned there, fatigue with your ads, for example, and fatigue with readers. How do you know when to start another series? Because a lot of crime series are just episodic. They, you know, buy book 21 or whatever. It, It is it that you will keep all of these series going on and on and on? Or do you plan to spin off a new series every time you get to a point of reader fatigue or advertising fatigue? Yeah, the way it works for me is it's around the underlying storyline. So my series arc will come to a conclusion. And that's the point at which I will spin off a new series. And I always have at least one character from an existing series in the new series, which 
helps pull readers along to the new series, which readers respond really well to. And also it means I can pick a sidekick and give them a bigger role, uh, which is something that, because sometimes you develop those characters and they're not your main character and you really enjoy writing them and you think, oh, I'd quite like to write a series around this person. And it's quite interesting because I've been talking to a TV production company about pitching the Zoe Finch series. And what they like is they they say I've created a universe and that it's what's called franchisable. And I think, well, I wasn't intending anything like that, but it sounds great when you put it like that. And readers love it because I've created this world with all these people in and they all pop up in each other's series and sometimes not physically there but on the other end of the phone giving advice or something like that or support and it means that I don't leave those characters behind even when I stop writing their books as well they're always there as a possibility yeah so you talked about your spreadsheet for the first book in terms of plotting Mm. do you have a world bible or how the hell are you keeping all of this stuff (laughs) organized my editor Joel Haynes he has a fantastic memory for this stuff I have tried to keep a series bible so many times and I've tried different ways of doing it I've tried doing it in Scrivener I've tried having spreadsheets I've tried having in the back of a notebook and I get in about 10,000 words into a book and I stop adding to it and But Joel remembers things. So I will write a scene in book four of a series in which somebody pulls up in a blue car and he'll say, no, in book one, they were driving a brown car. And he'll remember all those things. And he'll say, oh, but so-and-so went off to this place. They got transferred to a different location in book book three or something. So it's really useful having an editor who can help with that stuff. I have a vellum document, actually, that I put every finished book in. And then I literally just use the search function. I'm like, I know I had someone who did this. Let me just search and find them. And then I have to reread it. So I've also tried to build a world Bible over and over again. And I don't know, maybe it's just because we want to write another book, but I just cannot be bothered. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be writing stories, not Bibles. Yeah, Um, I like that idea about the vellum document. I mean, I, I use keywords in Scrivener. And when, so I have all the characters and the locations and the themes. And in each chapter, I will add the keywords of which ones are in there. And when I start a new book, I always take the last book I wrote, even if it was in another series, because of the fact that I have characters coming over from series. And I will start with that Scrivener document, remove all of the chapters and everything, but keep the keywords and then start writing the next book. So I've got those keywords already there. So that's one way I do it. But to be honest, I don't go into the sort of level of detail of the Bible. Uh, well, if you do end up with a TV series, that's one of the things they often want is, so uh, yeah. so Rachel, just give us the world Bible, the series <laughs> Bible for this. And you're like, oh, well, then you can just outsource that. Yeah, <laughs> You have a great chapter on adapting to change, which I think is so important. And you do talk a lot about mindset in the book. There's a lot of change in the, like the, the Amazon charts. And I mean, their change is, is a constant, but you are a successful full-time fiction author you do have some non-fiction too but what are some of your tips for authors looking to make it full-time and with that idea of adapting to change yeah I think it's about not being too set in your ways in terms of expecting to, to continue working in exactly the same way from one year to the next it's about having some 
a buffer or some backup. And I know that, I mean, something that I've seen you talk about at SPS Live and listen to on your podcast is about the concept of multiple streams of income, which I don't do because my brain works better with focusing on one thing and really doubling down on that. But I have financial backup in that I put money aside and I make sure I've always, when I've been running a business, have made sure that I've got six months worth of income sitting somewhere that I can't get at it so that if if my sales dropped off a cliff, I would have that buffer to be able to do something about it. I mean, this year I've had to adapt quite a lot of change in that I haven't been able to write as much because I've had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life. And that has disappointed readers at times because I've gone from writing a book every two months to a book every three months, which is still a lot, a lot by trad publishing standards. But I, yeah, I have had queries from readers about it. And at first I found that really, really stressful. And I started to think, right, how am I going to manage to write more books and go back to writing as fast? And then I thought, no, stop. Just give them other books to read in the meantime. So because my my newsletter goes out every week and it used to be that that cycle, half of those newsletters were about a new release because each new release would get four emails. Mm -hmm. And now they're not. But I've replaced some of those with recommendation emails saying, here's an author that you might want to try. And readers love that because they think it's really generous. And I'm just, you know, trying to support other indies and keep readers happy and find some content for my newsletter as well. So readers are getting used to the fact that I'm writing a little bit slower now. And I think the fact that I forced myself to sort of hang tight and not respond to the pressure on that. I'm glad I did that now. Yeah, I think, and you're right, because things change. Like when I had COVID, I could barely do anything for ages. Mm. And things happen, life happens. And we cannot be driven by the reader demand in that way, because like you said, they email you the day after. And (laughs) it's just impossible. You cannot keep up. But you, you said that I don't have multiple streams of income. I'm very focused. And I do think this is a personality difference. But you do have multiple streams of income. You have how many books now? (laughs) That's true. Um, 13 crime books at the moment. And then other books as well. Yeah, yeah. Although I have the the other thrillers and I have a few nonfiction books, but they don't come anywhere close to making a living for me. But I think the fact that I have two series does give me a bit of a buffer there because I have some readers who read both and I have some readers who just read one. I have more readers for the Dorset books. As it turned out, and this wasn't in my plan, releasing a series of books set in Dorset in a summer where people can't travel abroad was a really, really successful thing to do. And when I started planning them, I didn't know that was going to be the case, but it. I got so many emails from people saying, I'm lying on Bournemouth Beach at the moment reading your book and nobody's been murdered yet and and that was great it's really nice to to have all those people in the location and I got a tweet from somebody recently saying we recently went around to Dorset and we decided that we would visit all the locations in your books and that's what the structure of their holiday became and that was amazing I felt like you know that's something people do that for Jane Austen books (laughs) that's true gratifying 
Yeah, I've had people say that about some of mine as well. And that's why I'm quite looking forward to a sort of the augmented reality options where maybe we can do a tour, you know, like you said, you do these visits and you do a thing to camera. Well, in the future, I believe you will be able to record that. And then when people are there, they'll be able to see with their glasses on, they'll be able to see you superimposed over the environment, like talking about your book. So I I really love that idea for those of us for whom sense of place is super important. I think that's going to be an interesting, either a licensing deal or to do ourselves. I I think that's quite cool. Mm, Absolutely. I'd love to do that sort of thing. Because something Mm. I'm planning, which I was planning for this Christmas, but it hasn't happened in time. So I'm planning it in time for next Christmas is a coffee table book, which is a walk around Dorset, taking in all my crime scenes. And with lots and lots of photographs of the area around them and the locations and some personal stories as to what those locations mean to me and my history with them. And it's something that I was inspired to do by Anne Cleves, who's written a coffee table book about Shetland with lots Mm. of lovely photos in. And I'd really like to do that. And something like that would be fabulous in VR. Yes. Uh, Interestingly, Val McDermott did one on Scotland as well so wait LJ Ross is gonna have to do something around Northumberland (laughs) and I love that idea and that is so will you put that under your fiction name as well yes yes definitely because that will be aimed at my fiction readers yes and I'm just I will be putting out a a book on pilgrimage which will be my first non-fiction book under my fiction name and you also put out five steps to author success under your fiction name. So as someone who does, you have multiple author names, I have multiple author names. And so far, we have both kept those fiction and nonfiction. So uh, tell me, why did you put a uh, nonfiction under your fiction name? And this photography book as well will be a nonfiction. So can we use this kind of content marketing as fiction authors? Or are we messing up our also bots? <laughs> yeah, I think For me, the reason that I wrote the Five Steps book as Rachel McLean was because it was all about how I'd written and sold books as Rachel McLean. Whereas the Rachel McCollin books, they started because I was traditionally published writing WordPress development books. And there are a few published by by publishers and then a couple that have been published by me independently, which again are one of them is WordPress for writers, for example. So they're very much about IT, um, those books. There are a few more that are about writing that are workbooks and that kind of thing. But I'd I'd sort of left that behind because I put quite a lot of work into that in 2019. And then I use a piece of software called Toggle where you can track your time. And I tracked my time spent on fiction and nonfiction. And the amount of time I was spending on content marketing on nonfiction was huge. And it was meaning that my efficiency in terms of sales was really, really low for nonfiction. So I left that behind and focused on the fiction. So because I haven't really been using that pen name for quite a while, I decided that I would publish this book as the book that as the name that is associated with the successful author so that people could see that this is a book about how to succeed as an author written by somebody who is genuinely successful as an author. Cause you get so many books and courses by people who aren't successful authors mm. but pretend to know how to do it. And I wanted to make it very clear that I was speaking as somebody who knew what I was talking about, but also that, and this is something I say in the book a lot This is not a one size fits all approach. And what I've done will not necessarily work in exactly the same way for you. So don't assume that I'm telling you exactly what to do. But 
yeah, it's a series of tips and experiences that I've gone through that hopefully will help people. Oh, it's a great book. So tell us, where can people find you and everything you do online? Yeah, they can find me at rachelmclean.com, which is the hub for all of my books under the pen name Rachel McLean. So it's mainly around the crime fiction there. And on rachelmclean.com, they can get a free novella from each of my Dorset Crime and Zoe Finch series. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Rachel. That was great. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Rachel. And remember, you can do a combination of both writing for love and writing for money, but perhaps not with the same books. So Rachel said, it's about writing things that other people want to read, which to me is what writing is for. So that's really the question. Is that what writing is for for you? And for me, that's definitely some books, so mainly my nonfiction. But a lot of the time it's about writing a story that won't let me go or about an idea I need to work through in order to figure out what I think. So I write, often I write in order to figure out what I think and often those are my nonfiction books and often many of you are figuring out that too. But yes, I feel like we need to do, well, we need to think about what we want. So only you can answer that question for your writing. Let me know what you think. Leave a comment on the show notes or the YouTube channel. Tweet me at the creative pen with a double N or email me joanna at the creativepen.com. So I'll be back with an in-between episode on Friday as Jay Thorne and I discuss using generative AI for music and visual art. And uh, I challenge Jay and say, so Jay, I thought you said you were anti-AI. <laughs> and yes, uh, Jay's changed his mind and is using it now in his creative process. So we talk about that. We also talk about our thoughts on Web3 and NFTs. And then next Monday, I'll be talking to Dory Clark about The Long Game, a fantastic book I read or listened to the audiobook over last new year. And it's about how to have a long-term mindset and creative practice in a long-term world, something we all need to think about. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.